what would make your day seeing like which animal on a safari would you be like, <laughs> Ham done? Do you want this singing? is it? <laughs> Are we in a singing? Disney movie? No. Oh, that's no. Why I heard. Which one do you want to see? That's see. also interesting as well. <laughs> I kind of like that better, but would like to, yeah. Elephant, giraffes. Oh my god! Lions, yes. for sure. Yeah, all the classic big ones. And which of those three do you think has the best singing voice? If they were had to sing, <laughs> maybe a lion. Nice. That would <laughs> at least they roar too. really loudly. Yeah. Yeah, I think they'll get the job done. I think elephants would definitely come in with the nice tenor, you know, <laughs> vibes. <laughs> Um, then we have sopranos for giraffes. I'm, I'm into the lion, like middle of the ground. It sounds, sounds really good. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Tentative, a podcast brought to you by ThoughtBot, where we discuss digital product design. Joining us today is Hannah Yang, product manager of provider experience at Oscar Health Insurance. Hannah, do you want to introduce yourself? Just a little bit about who you are, where you work, what you do? Yeah. um, So I am right now a product manager at Oscar Health, which is a essentially a health insurance company, but it's much more tech oriented and digitally oriented. So we like to call ourselves like both health and tech combined. Mm-hmm. And right before coming to Oscar, I started my own company called The Shareway, which is a directory of companies that donate food and raffle items to nonprofit gala. So if you've ever been to a gala, a lot of times the raffle items and the beers and the pizzas, they're all donated. So we help nonprofits find those companies that donate. Oh, amazing. That's great. Are, are you still doing Shareway? Yeah. So we um, shifted to a side business almost two years ago now. So um, I still work on the side on it with my co-founder. Nice. Cool. Uh, typically one of the first questions that we ask each other, me and Jackie is what are you working on? If you can talk about it at your startup and then Oscar. For Oscar, just a few months ago, Oscar launched a virtual primary care pilot, which is essentially Oscar will match you with one of our primary care doctors and it's a virtual experience. So you always see them over video chat on the Oscar app. So I am on the team that is building features to support that virtual care experience. And for my startup, the Shareway, so today on the website, you basically go in, you select what city you're in and what you're looking for. And then we show you like a listing of companies that donate for that item in that city. We are basically now building a project management tool where you can like save the companies you're interested in and you can move them into like different stages like i've already applied to this company this has moved to like rejected stage or like approved stage so we're building that like tool so that you don't have to like save all the companies on a different spreadsheet so you could do everything within our um, website sounds super helpful yeah have you guys ever been to a nonprofit gala i don't think i have actually i don't think i have either well not there aren't many of them anymore right now because of COVID. Um, they're mostly right. virtual. So um, that was going to actually be one of my questions for for both of those. It seems like I don't know if you were working on this before COVID. You know, virtual <laughs> virtual meetings seem very uh, inspired by COVID, and then how your startup has has sort of 
either rethought some of the features that you're building because of the pandemic? For sure. So for Oscar, they were already um, thinking and have plans around the virtual care piece. I think COVID just accelerated the speed at which we ex- executed. Um, so it wasn't definitely wasn't like brand new that we came up with because of COVID. It was just accelerated. And for the Shareway, because we are in the event industry, so in March, um, our user sessions, active users definitely like significantly dropped. And I think the main thing we needed to decide is do we build something that's in light of this pandemic that's more relevant or do we stick to our original plan? And what we decided was because we were were working on it part time, it's really hard to pivot and do well because we just can't move as fast as Mm -hmm. other startups that are working on it full time. So we decided like, okay, we are confident events will come back. It'll take time. And then we were also getting signals that some nonprofits are exploring how to do it galas virtually. So they are still seeking donation items. There aren't as many as before, but it's still happening. So we just decided to focus on working on our evergreen articles that's going to help with SEO and like acquisitions. So we stuck to our original plan and just instead of like, focus on building a lot of features really quickly because if we want if we launch them the usage rate is going to be high because of covid but what we could do is focus on our seo and acquisition because they're always going to be there and it's going to come back for you when things start to pick up again that's really interesting like very much longer term thinking and how the time constraint sort of forces you to do that yeah in hindsight we're like oh it was actually really good we shifted to a side business because if we had been full-time on this we may have been dead by now yeah so i think the benefits of working on it as a side project is we have time we can wait it out versus other companies in the event industry didn't have that luxury so yeah and as far as oscar like how long have you been working at oscar since early 2019, so probably like a year and eight months-ish. Awesome. When you were starting to give higher priority to some of the virtual features that, that you were looking to offer, how did you start to do some product discovery around that? How did you plan for a future launch, make sure that those were the right features to build? And then did you have any sort of follow-up after that too? How did you build in sort of the testing and learning into your process too. In terms of deciding what to build, I think the first step is getting clarity and understanding your team's KPI and goal for the year. So I worked with my manager to really clarify that my team's goal is to help reduce provider offices, like administrative burden with Mm -hmm. working with Oscar. And also to help our customer service arm reduce the number of calls. Because if providers aren't using our tool online, that means they're calling into our customer service arms to ask questions. So we we don't want the number of call, calls to blow up. So after getting clarity on what the goal is, the next step is digging into data to understand what are the levers that will help you move that metric. So the KPI our team set for ourselves was percentage of provider interactions that is digital so we would like look at calls and compare those to like number of sessions online and see if it's trending more digital over time 
digging into our calls data, right? What are all the things that people call in about? And out of those, what are things they can do online? What are things they're not doing online yet? And can we shift that category to online? So I think initially it's, it's mostly just digging up this data to understand the, the key buckets of your lever. Mm-hmm. And after identifying like the top three or four, if it's something like that's really straightforward, like people aren't, after they create an account, they're not logging in. And that's the reason you might just like be able to think about like, okay, maybe I can improve the onboarding flow. But if it's stuff like, let's say they're calling in about very complex procedure, like how much, how much does like a arm surgery cost, right? When I first joined, they couldn't check that online. They had to call in and give the procedure code. So that product didn't exist yet. So then, then mm-hmm. we had to do actually more um, discovery research and interview providers. So the path looks different depending on how pl- complex the problem is. Gotcha. And I'm just curious, like how incorporating user testing into that, like into the fold there. I know you had, you had mentioned interviewing providers, but how about, I don't know, like patients as well? Yeah, I'm just kind of curious about that. Yeah. So we didn't really touch the patient side, mainly because it's an app for providers. And in terms of user tests, so if it's something where we aren't confident about what the solution may be, so we don't have mock-ups, we're just still understanding what the problem is and what the use cases are. We would start with interviews and then from there we will identify problems and then I will work with my designer to, based on what we've heard from the interviews, come up with a set of solutions and create Mm -hmm. designs and mock-ups. And then from there we would do user tests on the design to see if they're intuitive before those designs go into build because you don't want to get into build for Mm -hmm. a design that's not working. So it's user interview and design and then user test and then improve the design again, and then like build. We don't always do everything, depends on like how much time we have and how confident we are about the design. So that that end-to-end process, it's usually for like really needy projects that we really want to validate a lot before building, so. That makes sense where the, the risk is greater, spending the time to build the product or a feature. Yeah, so like an example where we don't do this is, if we're optimizing like a button, right? Instead of user testing three designs, we might just do an A-B test, right? We mm-hmm. we have three designs and we just distribute it across each user, like 30%, 30%, 30%, and then see what, what comes back, you know? And that saves mm-hmm. a lot more time than scheduling user tests. How frequently do you go to, we're talking about essentially like qualitative versus quantitative data. Do you have like a, a formula for when you use one over the other? So... When I first started, I was like pretty gun ho about wanting to do a lot of qualitative data. I got into product by starting my own company. And when you start your own company, you know the users intimately because you built everything completely from zero. So I just want to go out and talk to people, you know? <laughs> and I even like pulled some very scrappy moves where I just like walk into provider offices. That's um, awesome. <laughs> and just ask like I don't think any other PMs at Oscar have done that because they were so shocked when I did it. I was like, oh, this is normal. I did that all the time for the shareway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and nice. I think over time, what I learned is qualitative data interviews, they take a lot of time to schedule, especially mm-hmm. when you're a PM at a larger company, you don't have relationships with all of your users and you don't spend the time building up that relationship, right? Because at the Shareway, like, I will meet them 
And then I would just talk to them on email and like some of them have become my friends. You just know them so intimately that it was really easy. Like, Hey, I have this idea. Can I talk to you tomorrow? Mm -hmm. But at Oscar scheduling interview, you don't know any of these providers. You talk to them once, but there's no expectation for you to keep them posted every step of the way. Like the next time you do an interview, you just schedule from scratch again with another set, you know? So qualitative interview is actually a lot of effort to schedule and to organize and to recruit users. So initially when I started Oscar, I always wanted to do qualitative interview. And then I learned from our UX researcher and other product team just on other ways in which I can get the answer I need with lowered lift. So I started exploring different methods, right? Sometimes you can run a survey, right? And within the survey, you can make decisions between, do I run the survey with doctor's offices? Or can I actually just start with our customer service team, which there are like 80 of them and just get their take, right? Because that will be faster than like sending out emails to provider offices, right? Mm-hmm. So I explored surveys, um, explored A-B tests, really dug into the data a lot more. I think at my startup, I had good intuition of like what people want just because you built it from scratch. But at Oscar's level, like I was not a provider for the last three years and I didn't build the product from scratch, which meant I use quantitative data a lot more because I don't have clear intuition, at least in the first year, right? Like over time you build it up and I ended up working with data science to pull data to get signals and whatnot. I found that using essentially what you just explained, which is like at a smaller scale, it's a lot easier to get qualitative data. And that's much more important. Mm -hmm. And doing those interviews when you have a small set of users and then quantitative data becomes much more important when you have a large uh, user Mm -hmm. base and you're trying to figure out what a large group of people are doing. I've still found, I wonder if you found this too, after getting quantitative data, having interviews to follow that up sometimes parsing through numbers doesn't really tell me the story that I need to to see to either like think through or, or solve a problem doesn't sort of get down to the job to be done uh, it usually indicates a problem but it doesn't indicate mm-hmm. what outcomes people are looking for yeah for sure I think like it depends right so sometimes so like the two examples right like the one scenario we were trying to increase the percentage of people who get automatically verified versus they have to wait for the manual process. And the manual process is they enter their address, their tax ID number, and their practice name. And then Oscar's support team will call them back in like five days, three to five days to verify information. And then they will get access to the Oscar portal. The automated way is if you have two claims in the last 90 days, you could input the claim number. And if it matches our database, then you get automatic access. Mm-hmm. And it's stringent because once you have access to the portal, there's a lot of PHI, personal health information. So that's why our checks has to be stringent. So in that example, we just pulled the data on like what percentage of people are automatic versus manual and what percentage have can do automatic, but they chose manual for some reason. Mm-hmm. And that's an example of a project where you don't really need to do interviews after you get that data, right? You, you could start to A-B test UI, right? Like, what if we remove this model? Does that increase more people who automatically register? Or we make this button bigger, does it increase it, right? Like, I don't think you need to go and interview people and ask, 
hey, I'm really curious why you chose manual when you are qualified for automatic. They probably don't even remember, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's like an example where we use quantitative data and we're pretty confident of all the different things we can try without having to do user interviews. And another example is going back to earlier when I talked about how it's really hard to know how much your procedure is going to cost. And provider offices will call in to Oscar and say, I'm going to perform this procedure on the patient. Can you tell me how much it will cost? So we knew a lot of people were calling from our like tickets. We can get data on like the volume of how many people are calling in per day to ask about that. Mm-hmm. So we have the volume and through the tickets, you can kind of understand why they're calling in, but we weren't confident on like the why, like, are they calling in because they want to give the information to the patient or are they calling in because they want to get that number to do their back office billing, right? And how does back office billing work, right? Like, I don't even have a lot of clarity, right? Like, do you have to put stuff into like a software or is it pen and paper or is it fax? So in that example, we have the data of how many how many people are calling in, but we don't know why. And we ended up running like interviews with 10 people to dig into like the why and how it works and the various use cases for why they're calling in so that we really understand what the why is and can build a solution to solve the why. Yeah. I mean, just thinking too about being able to combine the qualitative and quantitative together, you get such a, an amazing cross-section of information And it is really smart to sit and think beforehand and be like, well, what can I really just, what do I have to really ask someone? What can I just gather from data? And it's nice too being at, I'm sure being an Oscar in that you have built in people to ask. You have have users you can can kind of pull. And also too, just being able to collect all that data if you need to do A-B testing, which is really nice. It's like such a luxury I know we had a a client too who had a really large user base. And so we were like, oh, we can just A-B test, let it run in the background for a couple of weeks, and we have all the information that we need to move forward. It was a luxury. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely is a luxury. Like at my startup, (laughs) our A-B test will be like, all right, let's know what the current rate is and write it down. Right. And then let's just turn on the new one, another run for two weeks, and then compare it. And then we might have to like roll it back if it's the worst. Yeah, it's exciting too to see those numbers kind of come up and you can kind of see how different elements are performing. Do you find yourselves always kind of looking to the data before making like sweeping UI changes or is there kind of a balance between your instinct and 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 the data? I think I would consider myself a pretty data-driven PM. Mm-hmm. I like looking to the data and I like to reference back to it. I, I think just from all the product books that I've read, and articles and personal experience, it's just so important to look at the data. If you don't have enough data to make certain decisions at first, and if you just have to put something in, then yeah. always like make sure to reference back on what the result was, or mm-hmm. else you have no way of knowing. And data also helps you convince people if there's ever a disagreement. Yeah. Because data is what you can't argue against. So I, I like using data in all the things that I, I do. Yeah, it's hard to argue with numbers. It's interesting how different interpretations, though, that's kind of where it gets to be subjective. Like statistical significance, how do you even know you've hit that? You know, like, is it a few weeks? Is it just this many people passing through? But I know when we when we did some of these tests, the program actually made a note of like, this is significant. I'm like, okay, thank you, program. <laughs> 
Thank you, computer. <laughs> yeah. So it was hard to argue with that, you know. I've worked on a lot of projects that have not had enough of a user base or like enough uh, traffic to really do an A-B test. So he did a lot of what Hannah's talking about, which is like <laughs> taking a measurement of where the data point is now and then making a change. And hopefully hopefully it's, it's a change in the right direction and, and we start mm-hmm. to see some progress. I've done a lot more of those A-B tests, if you want to call those that, mm-hmm. because of the clients that I've worked with have all been very early on. I would really enjoy being in a position where I got to use a lot more facts and figures to sort of guide my my research. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. There are tons of VPN providers out there. You've probably heard of a couple of them. And some of you may even used a VPN before. But I like to do research on my sponsors, and I only recommend brands to my listeners that I believe in. I can say with full confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. Here's why. ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. Lots of really cheap or free VPNs make money by selling your data to ad companies. ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. Second is speed. I've tried lots of VPNs in the past. Many slow your connection down or make your device sluggish. I've been using ExpressVPN and my internet speeds are blazing fast. Even when I connect to servers thousands of miles away, I can still stream HD quality videos with zero lag which is really important for those MLB baseball games when I want to be out of market. The last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart from other VPNs is how easy it is to use. Unlike other VPNs, you don't have to input or program anything. Just fire up the app and click one button to connect. It's so easy anyone can use it. And it's not just me saying this. Wired, The Verge, CNET, and many other tech experts rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Use my link expressvpn.com slash tentative and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash tentative to learn more. What have you learned at, at your experience at, at Oscar? Anything surprising to you? Any Any kind of insights just kind of before job now that you're in it for almost two years? I've actually been writing articles about this, (laughs) just what I found surprising and just like the transition of being like a founder turned PM. Yeah. One, I think bringing all the stakeholders on to like a vision is something that you do at larger companies as a PM. Mm -hmm. So at my startup, it was oftentimes me and my co-founder we brainstorm, we decide on something, and then we both are aligned and we just go um, when we do it. But at Oscar and any larger companies, there's getting signups from various stakeholders and like healthcare and imagine finance too. There's like legal things you might have to sign off if it crosses that line or there's like a question around it. And if you want to make a change, sometimes it requires another team to make a change to support the change you want to make. So you there's dependency. So mm-hmm. there's just a lot more coordination involved to push something through. So it's not just a matter of, yes, we want to do this. It's like, yes, I want to do this. Can I convince my team to do this? And can I convince my stakeholder to want to do this? And can I convince my like other impacted product teams to do this as well? You know, so there's like mm-hmm. five layers versus like just one. So that's one big difference. 
Another difference is I was so surprised by how hard user research was.、Mm. I thought I was just going to go out and talk to people, and I was just going to email them using my email. And then I I learned I, I can't use my own email address because、mm-hmm. you don't want users to have your own email address because they're going to keep on emailing you instead of the customer support team next time they have a question.、Mm-hmm. So I had to go through our IT team to get a, a generic email address. And to send the emails, I couldn't send it. Marketing has to send it because they own the list. Anyway, so it was just like really fascinating, right? Like I thought、yeah. user research is something you just wake up, you decide you want to do it, and you go do it, and go walk outside and go talk to people. But this is like okay, drafting the email with marketing, who's going to send it, getting the right email address to、mm-hmm. do it, and then scheduling because we are in like a highly regulated industry. We couldn't just use generic tools like Calendly, where people can book times with you. Like that didn't get approved by by security,、mm. and we had to just manually go back and forth and and figure out a time. So it was、oh, that's so that's、lot. also a big、yeah. difference. <laughs>、yeah. I was really surprised by that one, the user research piece. I think、yeah. much bigger companies like Facebook, they have a whole user recruiting team.、Mm-hmm. So you just put in the request, and they do it for you. But in some of like the mid-sized companies who may not have that user research ops set up yet, like it could actually add up to quite a bit of work. Another one that was interesting that I learned was thinking about edge cases. At my startup, it was just if that issue actually comes up, we'll figure out when it comes up because、mm-hmm. there aren't as many users, right? If it comes up, you just solve it or you talk to them. Yeah, but. With my team at Oscar, they've really taught me to think about all the edge cases because you have many more users. You can't afford to accidentally block someone out from a certain experience. So I had to learn to think ahead a lot more on all the edge cases.、Yeah. Versus, I didn't have to do that at my startup because if someone uses it, that's like a really good sign already. You know, <laughs> like we probably <laughs> won't end up with edge case issues that much. You know, just because、sure. we don't have as many users. Sure. How much of that do you think is the difference between like at Oscar? You're, you're working on a product that there might actually be life or death situation. Right and making sure that it is accessible to all people is incredibly important. And you d- talked about the regulation. So, how much of it, I guess, is the industry that Oscar is in versus the startup versus the size of the company? The regulation part—that's a really good point. It, it definitely makes the edge case piece even more important. So, I would say it's probably both the size of the company and the industry that we are in. Because, yeah, you're right. Like, we can't. Have our site be down for too long because people are coming to the hospital and doctors need to check what their copay is, right? Or、yeah. check certain important things, or like we can't afford to get things wrong, right? Like when they check what the patient's copay is, they have to see if this patient is active or are they actually not an Oscar member anymore. If we get the status wrong, like let's say that this person hasn't paid their bills in a while, and we show that they're active, the doctor could see them. And then they bill Oscar, and Oscar never ends up paying them because at the point when you saw them, they are inactive. You know, so、mm-hmm. there's just certain things we can't get wrong because it impacts whether or not certain people get paid or people get the healthcare that they need. So I think that's definitely an element. I'm actually really curious in your experiences. 
if you ever work to larger companies, are edge cases more important? So my sense is both the company size and the regulation, but I'm curious if it's actually more because of the regulation It's and other companies actually don't have to think through edge cases that much. Yeah, I think the regulations, I think that definitely has a different spin on it and it's way more urgency and it's way more important to make sure, yeah, that you aren't, you know, cutting anyone out. In my experience for like larger companies, sometimes edge cases just kind of come from the team itself of just kind of people brainstorming or trying to contribute in their own meaningful way of like, well, have we, you know, considered, I remember though, like one silly, (laughs) one time, this is many, many years ago, someone like popped in and was like, well, what if there's no, what if the internet goes out, then what would they see? And I'm like, that's not the edge case where, (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) we'll have to put that on the back burner, but I don't know. I think, Kyle, do you have, do you have anything in particular? I think a lot of it depends on the company culture too. So I've worked in in a couple different larger companies and some some really care about that and so edge cases are really important to how they do business and others sometimes like because it was like either internal software to them or or for whatever reason the edge cases weren't nearly as as important. Huh. Yeah. My my kind of rule of thumb too to kind of help get things through, even if there are many edge cases. It's just kind of like, okay, well, if this edge case happens, will this, as you were saying, Hannah, like, you know, will this prevent someone from being serviced? Like, would this actually be really detrimental to a user if this edge case happened? And like, listing them in priority that way. If there's an edge case that's kind of, you know, sometimes I'm kind of like, well, just kind of let it happen. And if it's not going to really affect someone, but maybe visually something might look off or whatever, like that's not as important as, oh, someone shut out of this service and this is like a life or death situation. You know, I think it is important to really think about the consequences of certain edge cases and prioritize that way. Yep. For sure. Yeah. I'm actually also curious, any of you have experienced this other hurdle I've had working in regulated industry. So sometimes regulations and compliance just makes the user experience terrible because you Mm. have to comply to those regulations. So one example I had was there's this thing in health insurance called authorization. So for certain procedures, doctors have to submit an authorization request to the insurance companies Mm -hmm. for them to approve before performing the procedure. So we allow providers to submit these auth form online, but there's very strict regulation on how you call the fields. So like, mm. instead of like phone number, you, for some reason, this rule says it needs to be like communication number. Oh, uh, because somehow <laughs> that EHR system was like built many years ago. And yeah. all of these fields need to perfectly match up to the standards within EHR systems and like electronically transferred like data system. And we had this rule where the form name has to be a certain way, but the regulation names aren't very intuitive, but we had to have them. So we ended up having to like, we kept what we had, the user-friendly terms. And we also had to show like the official regulated term, but in like a more grayed out way. But Mm. it was really frustrating because it's not a good experience, but we had to have this. I'm just curious if you ever encountered Mm. that and what your experiences are. I had a project where we, it was actually working with an insurance company. So it was very regulated 
And I think in that sense, our goal was to take a lot of the things you're talking about and make them user friendly and put it in terms that people will understand better. So I think in, in that case, on the client side, like the users saw our more modern, more um, relatable terms, but on the back end, the form submission, all those fields still had to line up, like as you were saying, to like that, you know, those old databases and everything, you know, and legal was okay with it. They're like, okay, it's not important for the, for the actual user to read communication line. Like, you know, they, they can read phone number and the, in the back end though, we'll have to make sure that it matches up to communication number or whatever. Interesting. I've hit sort of like roadblocks like that before as well for some of the health related products that we've, I've worked on and also for a law app that we worked on that one we were working for lawyers. So they were especially, they had an eye for, for catching that kind of thing. Mm. There were times where I was like, oh man, I wish I could design the system around the thing that I'm designing. (laughs) It was like a, a bit of frustration, but I think I guess a good designer works within constraints, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I do like constraints. They do help with creativity. Sometimes they're boring. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like hard to read. (laughs) We're coming up on our time. So I think we should probably wrap this up. Hannah, after we finish our conversation, we do a good, the bad, and the ugly about a topic that came up a lot um, usually it's around food. However, this time I would love to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly about starting your own company. Um, so as a founder, love to hear the good, the bad, <laughs> and the ugly. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Tum- cue it- tumbleweed blowing across the, the screen. <laughs> What is the difference between the bad and the ugly? That is up to you to decide. In the eye of the beholder is what, what we'll Kyle say. Kyle and I have never discussed that. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay. The good is I felt like I was doing exactly the thing that I wanted to be doing every single day. Yeah. All the times so that when I worked at a company, there was always this like, I want to get somewhere. I'm doing this mm-hmm. so I can get to this spot. But during my startup, it was like, I wake up and like, I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. Um, mm-hmm. This is exactly what I want to be doing. And that felt so great. I mean, I didn't get like paid a lot for it, but it was exactly what I want to be doing. And I really, really enjoyed that. Just working on that. the mission that I was working on. Yeah. The bad is like, People didn't want to use your product or they gave you back feedback. Then you get into the spiral where you you question what you're doing and Mm -hmm. if it's worth it. And like every couple of weeks, there are going to be moments where you come back and ask you yourself like, well, why am I doing this? And then I usually have to like journal for like 20 minutes to Mm -hmm. like come back to to center myself. You know, I'm doing this because I believe this product needs to exist. And if I don't build it, no one else will build it. Yeah. So every couple of weeks, there will be that like self-check moment. I think it happens much more often when you're working on your own thing versus at a company. At the company, mm-hmm. I, I might like check in with myself every like three months or like half a year. But I think that sure. happens much more often when you're doing your own thing because the opportunity cost is really high. You know, like you're not getting paid a lot for this and you're sacrificing the opportunity of being a PM at another job, right? Mm-hmm. So that happens much more often. And the ugly, basically, 
all the things you messed up on that like really cost you. So like Mm -hmm. I built something that I assume people wanted, but no one wanted it. And that was two months of my runway. And if my runway was for 12 months, one year, that's very, very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. My God. I want to know too, like, were you working all the time? Did you have like the bags under the eyes? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just always. (laughs) So I always make sure to have one day off during the week. I think that was very important for my personal health on the weekdays. Yeah, I I worked longer than at Oscar, but I still make sure to like exercise to eat. So like I didn't do anything that was detrimental to my health. I think I I worked as much as I could um, while maintaining like a good healthy lifestyle. But the, the some of the long days at the showway didn't feel as hard as the shorter days at Oscar, mainly because sure. you're doing exactly what you want to be doing and you're so yeah. driven and motivated. And like it's fun, you know? Yeah. I love that. Thank I think you that's for the sharing. First, the first good, bad and the ugly. That was like a, a real like a real thing. Yeah. So thank you. I'm feeling inspired. <laughs> I'm feeling very inspired. So thank you so much. Yeah, for sharing all of that and for spending your time with us, Mm -hmm. for getting to know you. It was really fun. This has been great. Awesome. I really enjoyed the conversation too. If people want to get in touch with you, is there a like best way to get in touch? Yeah, I think just DM me at my Twitter, Hannah with an H at the end, C Yang. Nice. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Tentative. If people want to contact us, they can reach out at, at tentativefm on Twitter. They can email us, hosts, at tentative.fm. And they can see all of the show notes at tentative.fm. Yeah, rate us on iTunes. Oh, that, that too. So many stars. All the stars. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.